This is the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Groups podcast for all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. I am your host, Brittany J. Harris, Vice President of Learning and Innovation, and I am excited to leverage this medium as yet another opportunity to facilitate dialogue, shift perspectives, and empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. This season, we are demystifying internalized oppression. I'm super excited to be joined by, or with rather, um, today, Lee Morrison. She is a member of the Learning and Innovation Team, also known as Hashtag Everyday. We lit. <laughs> we are responsible for supporting our clients in developing high impact learning, education experiences around equity and inclusion. Um, Lee, I'm going to give you the chance to just introduce yourself briefly um, and perhaps even share a few aspects of your identity that influence, you know, how you show up in the world, but then even how you show up in this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, so as Brittany mentioned, I work on the learning and innovation team at the Winters Group and work with clients to help design uh, learning experiences. I am trained as an educator. Um, also, in terms of some of my identities, I am a queer white woman. I identify as cisgender. Uh, I'm an educator and a learner. I am from the Midwest. I'm also in my personal a sister, a writer, and I'm a proud graduate of Wellesley College, uh, which has historically been a women's college, and that'll pertain mm -hmm. to uh, some of the topics that we'll be discussing later today. All right, and you know what, Lee? Totally forgot. If you could also share your pronouns for the, um, the folks who are listening. Absolutely. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So y'all, as we, as you all well know, we have been talking about internalized oppression this season. Um, and today we're going to pick up on this discussion with Lee. And so Lee, in her piece, and so for the folks who have, who have not read, shame on you, just kidding. If you have not read, um, Lee talked about her experience uh, at a woman's college. She entitled her post, How a Woman, Woman's College Student Relearned to Love Women. Um, Lee, I'm going to just ask if you could just share a little bit more about your contribution and, and kind of like what it was like for you to do this level of reflecting on this aspect of identity. Sure. So uh, for the post that I wrote, I was reflecting on my identity as a woman and the ways that I realized I had internalized some negative messages about my own gender. Um, and I specifically sort of unpacked that topic as it related to my experience uh, seeking out and then attending a historically women's college. And I think that that connection is particularly important because many people might assume, and I think that I would probably include my past self mm -hmm. among them, uh, that 
because attending a women's college was an experience that I sought out and that felt important to me, I had already sort of moved beyond holding any harmful stereotypes about or biases against women. Uh, But that was not, in fact, the case, which was Mm -hmm. something that I sort of uh, discovered during my time at Wellesley. Um, So this is a subject that I've spent a lot of time reflecting on over, I'd say, probably the past five years Mm -hmm. or so. And it can be a really painful subject. It's difficult to kind of acknowledge, I think, ways that uh, we may actually hold negative ideas about our own identities in particular. Um, But I do believe that it's so, so important for us to talk about these things uh, because something that I've discovered in conversations with other people and in sharing my experience is that a lot of people have had similar experiences to my own in having to sort of unlearn stereotypes or harmful narratives about gender or other identities that they might hold. And I think that oftentimes these aren't conversations that a lot of people are having, but I think that one of the only ways that we can really challenge that norm is to share more openly about our experiences and challenges around internalized oppression so that others can learn from them or consider how those ideas may have affected their understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And you know what, Lisa, I want to make sure one of the things I talked about in um, our intro episode was just the importance of language and lexicon around DEI. Um, and so definitely want you to share with our listeners how you define gender as it relates to this conversation in your reflection. Another thing I just wanted to put out there is interesting that you use the word pain. And so in our conversation with Mary Frances a few episodes ago or last episode um uh she actually used the word pain to describe what this reflection was like for her Uh, I think that says a lot about sometimes you know what is necessary to sort of just grow and and reflect and experience shifts in oneself that it's going to be you know, uncomfortable, uncomfortable that we may experience some discomfort as we reach our learning edge. I thought it was just so interesting that you use that word and it's so top of mind for me since I um, recently, mm. you know, connected with Mary Francis on her post. So anyway, back to my question um, about gender. How are we defining it? And then if you could just go into some of the messages, right? So some of the messages that we're socialized, that you were socialized to believe about women and gender. Sure. So uh, the topic of this post was, again, my gender identity. And uh, it is important to acknowledge that gender is different from the sex that people are assigned at birth, uh, because for a long time, there was a dominant narrative in our culture that sex and gender were kind of interchangeable Mm -hmm. or the same thing. Um, So typically, when people are born, they're um, sort of medically classified as either male or female. Uh, which is their sex assigned at birth. And that's usually something that's then reflected as a marker on things like legal documents, Mm -hmm. unless someone applies to change that. Um, But by contrast, gender identity exists in our minds. So it's more about how we feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And people might oftentimes make assumptions based on our appearances um, about what our gender may be, but no one can actually know your gender identity unless that's something that you share with them Um, and that doesn't make it any less valid 
Um, so in my case, I was assigned female at birth, um, and I also identify as a woman. Um, and so that means that I'm a cisgender woman, and uh, that's sort of the perspective that mm-hmm. I was writing from um, as I was reflecting on this topic. Um, and then as you asked about uh, some of the messages that uh, many of us maybe uh, have been socialized to believe about women or gender, um, there are quite a few uh, things like women cause drama mm-hmm. or women are driven by emotions rather than logic and maybe can't be trusted because of that. Um, also, uh, perhaps men can't or shouldn't express mm-hmm. emotions or that that somehow betrays uh, weakness that isn't masculine. Um, and so I would say I didn't personally subscribe to uh, those ones as much, but a couple messages that I think were more salient in my experiences included things like um, perhaps that women and girls are less interesting or less important mm-hmm. than men and boys. Um, I talked a lot with a friend of mine as I was um, closing out high school about how if I had kids, I really hoped that they would be boys, um, which I now see as a very problematic and in fact sexist idea. Um, Another message was uh, that women are superficial or higher maintenance. Um, And I really tried hard at the start of college, I think, to present in a more androgynous way Mm -hmm. I sort of prided myself on really having only practical clothes nothing that was decorative or unnecessary Um, and since that time I've come to realize that that was sort of a way of distancing myself from uh, perhaps elements of my femininity that I've now realized I sometimes really enjoy and actually do feel are important to my identity Um, And then another message that I think is really quite pervasive in our culture and that I address in the post is the idea that women are somehow less fun or funny than men. Mm. Uh, And I would say during my first year at Wellesley, before I sort of settled into my social life um, on campus, I was unhappy in some ways and I found it easy to sort of attribute my unhappiness to the fact that there were very few men on campus um, and that this idea that men somehow brought a lightness or a levity Mm. to spaces that I was missing. Um, And I would say I wasn't thinking during that time about the ways that that was a really stereotypical or essentialist idea um, or the ways that it was in fact being directly challenged by women around me who I knew who were really fun and funny. Um, So that was just kind of a easy explanation that I turned to for um, some of the ways that I wasn't feeling happy in that space initially. You know what you made me think you just so you just made me think of as you were giving those examples. And this just goes back to how, you know, some of these could on the surface be seemingly oh, it's just it. It's no big deal, right? Oh, you just don't want to have a kid. Our boy or or girl, I think about how I've heard, I don't know that I've ever said this, but I've heard like, well, I don't like or prefer to have female friends or women friends. You know what I mean? I I just don't, Uh right? Like, and I just thought about that because I, or I'm not a girl's girl. I prefer not to be around girls because I think you mentioned it in this post, right? Around like, oh, because it's going to be too much gossip or too much drama. And I sat here Uh and reflected on how it's such a like, 
pervasive, nor for lack of better terms, normal statement that I don't even think I've ever realized how problematic it is. It's rooting in, it's rooted in something else that women are this way, that femininity is associated with this, and hey, by the way, it's wrong, right? Which is what this this work is all about. I just sat here and thought about that literally as you're speaking. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think um, something I touched on in the post as well was uh, oftentimes people would, when I told them, oh, I've chosen to attend Wellesley, they would say, oh, I could never yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would just be too much drama. Um, you know, like women are so catty, et cetera, comments like that. Um, and even as I was sort of seeking out this women's college experience, that was something that I um, didn't appreciate hearing and I would sort of push back on it and I would say no this is this is going to be a really empowering environment for me um, which was true but at the same time some of the um, attitudes that I held or uh, some of my behaviors were sort of betraying some of these uh, underlying uh, feelings that I may have internalized um, over the course of my life that uh, women were somehow um, less interesting or more difficult to be around, um, et cetera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things, one of the things that I loved most about your post, and I think is just so relevant to our work, particularly those who are heavy um, or at least steeped in rather DEI work, consider themselves advocates and change agents, is that you considered gender, at least I made the assumption from reading, like gender and aspect of writing that you were proud of or, you know, are proud of, um, that you still found yourself like internalizing and even enacting on some of these, you know, harmful messages. And so how is that so, right? How is, you called it irony in your post. Like, I don't even think I recognize the irony of it. Um, and I asked, how is that so? Because I, I have experienced in conversation with folks who have adopted this sense of, or assumed this sense of, oh, I'm sort of immune to certain messages because of my experiences and who I am. And we're learning that that is simply not the case. Absolutely. So when I started looking for a college to attend, I was really interested in women's colleges. I ended up choosing Wellesley. Um, And even as that was an experience that I sought out and understood on a logical level why it would be empowering Mm -hmm. to me, uh, I think I didn't think at the time that I had continued personal reflection or work to do around that part of my identity. Uh, I felt like, you know, I understood gender oppression and that was sort of demonstrated by my choice of college, right? Um, And I think that the way I conceive of this now is that my understanding of feminism at that time was uh, superficial in many ways. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was flawed. It was sort of based on proving that women could be exactly the same as men Mm. um, rather than perhaps celebrating some of the things that might make women different or uh, drawing attention to ways that women have historically not been granted the same opportunities or given the same representation as men. Um, So I would say initially I actually tried to sort of minimize the importance of my gender identity um, and any pride that I had around it was to some degree on a superficial level. Um, You know I remember thinking things like my identity as a woman is not very important Mm -hmm. to me or thinking that it was 
outdated or somehow unhelpful to talk about gender inequities from the past, even though we have so much evidence that uh, they continue to affect people's experiences and opportunities today. Um, and I was actually a lot more interested in LGBTQ activism. I sort of threw myself into that because it seemed a lot more interesting to me at the time. Um, whereas today, by contrast, I list my identity as a woman as one of the most important identities to my experience and um, my understanding of the world and who I am. Um, and I think particularly for those of us who are practitioners in diversity and inclusion spaces, it's so important for us to remember that none of us are mm -hmm. ever sort of finished with this work. Um, there's always more to reflect on, more that we can learn, more perspectives we can seek out that we may not have gotten previously. And I think that if we, as practitioners, fail to recognize that, our work can only go so deep. Um, and I also believe that it's really, really essential that practitioners be able to sort of model this vulnerability, this self-reflection mm -hmm. um, for others that we're working with and that we can be the first ones to say, you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm still struggling with how my socialization has affected me. And I honestly think that the more thinking we do about these topics, uh, the farther we'll actually perceive ourselves from being finished with our learning. And I guess in a sense that can sound really discouraging, mm -hmm. but I think of it as a good thing because we can always grow further. We, and, and so one of the themes on these episodes is this reflection piece, reflection, reflection, reflection. Let's focus on the intra-personal work. You know, someone, as, as someone with like a, an education design uh, uh, facilitation background, Lee, why is this reflection piece so important? Because, I mean, you've heard it, like, folks will tell us all the time, like, it's so abstract, give us the tips, you know, give us the things that we need to do. And this is certainly not to undermine the need for action, because quite frankly, yes, things need to change, um, certainly values, behaviors, uh, or I'm sorry, values, uh, growth in one's understanding should be enacted upon in systemic shifts, but we really, really emphasize this role of self and reflection in our work. Why? Like, what what happens if we don't? What what do, what do we run the risk of if we are not doing that part of the work? That's a great question. So, I think one thing is that it's really easy oftentimes to point to other mm -hmm. people as the problem without turning around to uh, self-reflect and think about how we might be contributing to problems that we may care about fixing or um, challenges or systems that we may care about dismantling. Um, oftentimes it's really challenging to sort of take on that accountability. And I think that without the reflection piece, uh, it makes it much easier to just sort of point to other people as the problem, um, which I think is one of the biggest things that holds us back from making progress. Um, also, in terms of uh, sort of uh, best practices in learning, it is, we know, so essential for people um, to, when they're learning about a topic, to be able to connect it to their own experiences. Um, I think at least in my own personal experience, and I think many other people um, 
would probably have a similar experience as well. Uh, it is um, just really uh, something, it can make the difference between really caring mm-hmm. about a topic versus not, uh, whether or not we're able to connect it to our experiences. So um, one of the things that I think was so key to me sort of um, developing an awareness around uh, some of these sexist ideas that I had internalized was uh, taking a women's literature class, which wasn't even something that I had been very interested in. It was sort of just the only class uh, that was offered at my local community college that I could apply to my gender studies degree. Um, And so I uh, enrolled in this class reluctantly and fully did not expect to enjoy it, but it was actually in that class where I encountered um, personal reflections uh, written by other women uh, from various identities, various parts of the world, um, where they kind of were wrestling with some of um, this like self-hatred or hatred of uh, this part of their identity that I really kind of recognized some of my own thoughts in those um, in those experiences that they shared and really started reflecting on this. And that's how I really came to care very deeply about this topic. Um, And prior to that, I think I had just sort of been able to distance myself from it. um, And I hadn't really delved into the ways that that affected the way uh, that I was approaching the world, the way I was understanding my own experiences. Um, And really it was through taking that class that I really didn't even want to take to begin with, um, that my entire perspective on this shifted. And I came back um, my junior year at Wellesley uh, with just a very different worldview as a result of um, some of the reflection that I had done, uh, which wasn't inspired by uh, reading Mm -hmm. The experiences of people um, who share this part of my identity. Mm-hmm. And you know what, that actually gets to um, a question I wanted to pose around, okay, well, you know, if, if we're saying none of us are immune to these messages, um, and that we could all be, you know, susceptible to internalizing biases around our own identities, what can we actually do about it? And so what does um, what does countering those biases and what does countering those messages, you know, look like? What work have, have you done? And I love that you phrased it either, it was either earlier or um, in the actual post that this is something that's ongoing. Like there's, you, you, folks, we don't arrive, right? You know, this is something yes. that's <laughs> ongoing. Um, this is a journey. And so what does countering, like what are some things that folks can do to actually counter some of what is so entrenched in what we've learned? Sure. Uh, So one thing that I would say is um, surround yourself with people who contradict the biases Mm. that you recognize in yourself. Um, So I spent a year at Wellesley telling anyone who asked me what I thought about it that I missed men because they were funny and I wasn't finding people who valued humor in the same way that I did. Um, and then the next year during my sophomore year, I actually joined a satire news show on campus (laughs) and I found other students who love to be funny. And I realized that I had totally made this false assumption based on stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And I really just had to find people who helped to prove those stereotypes wrong. Um, so that's one thing. 
I also think that it's so, so important to be very intentional about the media that you are consuming. So that means a few things to me. That means being a critical consumer of media sort of at large. So asking yourself things like, who's telling this story that I'm consuming? What's the narrative? Where might it be simplified or leaving out important details or not including um, some perspectives that might have bearing on this conversation? Uh, I also think that that means going out of your way to consume content that's been created Mm -hmm. by people from historically marginalized or underrepresented groups um, who haven't necessarily enjoyed as much um, attention or um, been able to um, share their content as far and wide. Um, And I think that since most of us do have to go out of our way to do that, it's also important to uh, sort of retroactively think back on um, when you grew up and the media that you were consuming uh, was probably produced by people um, largely with more privileged identities um, and how that may have perhaps shaped your understanding of the world. Um, so, I mean, I, I hadn't necessarily done this even until recently, but I thought back to um, the books that I remembered being assigned in school um, or mm. movies that I watched as a child um, and think about, you know, who was creating that media, which identities were featured or kind of absent from those media, um, and think about what you didn't encounter and who you may be able to learn from to sort of fill in some of those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, I would say um, it's really important to actively think about what negative stereotypes or narratives might exist in our culture at large around your identities um, and to assume that you likely have internalized some of them in some ways um, even if they are messages that upset you or frustrate you Um, and so I think it's important to consider how your behaviors or your attitudes uh, might reflect that and give yourself some grace because Uh, I don't think any of us are sort of immune from internalizing these messages, um, whether those are about our own identities or those of others, Um, but also just be very intentional about asking yourself what you can do to challenge and overcome those narratives um, and be intentional about incorporating some of the changes uh, that are within your control. That is so, I love what you said about being a critical consumer um, sort of the critical consumption of media um, and the degree of intention, right? People tease me sometimes and maybe you get it too. Like, oh, you're such an overthinker. Like you're thinking about everything. And I'm like, oh yeah, you better <laughs> get with it. Like <laughs> you better start overthinking too. Like, I mean, there's levels folks and it ain't easy being woke, but um, <laughs> just kidding. You know, but that is so real. I don't, you know, especially just kind of being a parent, not kind of, but just being a parent now, right? I was talking yes. to one of my um, mom friends recently that, you know, certainly we have experienced strides. And so I'm trying to get into the kids now. And I got a question with, for you about that in a bit. But certainly we've made it strides of representation in like some of the, the media outlets, right? And so when mm-hmm. I think about like, you know, um, 
shows like Blackish and a lot of the the movies that are coming out, Queen and Slim, and you know just all of these this, this these uh, this this representation that has become more evident, um, at least from a a, a cultural uh, perspective for older viewers. Um, I would venture to say that, so, so my son, he has an iPad and he watches YouTube Kids. And I swear, Lee, um, none, of the, none of the shows that he watches, and, and, I, and I'm thinking about this as you say, like critical consumption, think about the media, like think about the, the, uh, the things that we're even putting in front of our kids, right? So many of mm-hmm. the like YouTube personalities, I mean, many of them do not look like him, right? He's a black boy. I wonder, and I don't even know, and it's something that I should do, I should, and I'm going to hold myself accountable to this, I wonder sort of even some of the messages that they send in like the toys. So, you know, like toy reviews right now, right? Like toy reviews are huge Mm. on YouTube kids. So you have kids like, you know, doing reviews on kids. So innocent and it's entertaining. He sits there and and does that. But, you know, something as innocent as that. The other day he told me um, I couldn't have something because I was a girl. And I'm like, whoa, bro, no, Braxton. You know what I mean? Mm. Right? And so Mm -hmm. certainly he's never heard me say that, right? But it was interesting, and I'm Absolutely. thinking, right? I'm like, what are you watching? What are you hearing at school? There is so much, right? So, so this stuff goes deep. This stuff goes deep, folks. And part of you talked about influence. Part of our sphere of influence is um, is countering that, not just for ourselves, but you know, the people who we care for. Um. So yeah, that came up for me as you were just speaking about consuming media because consuming media. I mean, we've been doing that. I mean, that starts so young, especially now especially now Mm -hmm. um yes it does and so I have a question for you because you've done you've worked with children you've done a lot of work even with the winners group around bold inclusive conversations with young people um and even hearing me just share what I just shared what are your thoughts on the ways in which people whether they're teachers or parents or caretakers or just have access to children right can begin to have Mm -hmm. you know similar conversations with children and expose children to ways to think more critically about, you know, what they're learning about themselves and obviously others. Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked that. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. I think um, when I think back to my own experience, I mean, um, my parents never sort of um, in any intentional way, like instilled in me um, these like sexist ideas that I realized I was wrestling with um, during my college years. Uh, They were really so supportive and empowering to me. Um, And yet uh, it was, you know, through consuming Mm -hmm. media and other things that um, still I was not immune to uh, the reach of some of these messages. So I think that that really underscores how important it is to be proactive and assume that you know, they're going to encounter these messages somewhere. Um, What are we going to do to sort of disrupt those Mm -hmm. narratives? Um, So I am glad that you mentioned representation. I think that that's really, really important, especially um, for young people. Um, And there are so many uh, books, TV shows, movies these days that Um, are really starting to center identities and characters and narratives that um, haven't necessarily been centered as much in the past. So uh, that's really exciting. It does still require sort of going out of your way to uh, make sure that those are 
uh, media that you're bringing into children's mm-hmm. lives. Um, and I also, I believe firmly that it's never too early for us to start having conversations with young people about some of these difficult topics around identity and specifically inequity. Um, And I think that that often feels sort of taboo where we don't want to sort of shatter their illusion that uh, the world is a fair place. And yet, um, if we're sort of raising them to believe that it's fair when it's not, that presents a whole host of other issues Mm -hmm. down the line. Um, So I think it's really all about framing uh, the conversation in a way that's accessible to them and their experiences. Um, and uh, that's so important just because um, so many of the messages that we internalize, um, that's happening on sort of a passive level. So we need to be active about counteracting them. Um, you know, it's not like I sat down and decided to learn that women weren't funny. It was sort of a combination of a lot of little comments mm-hmm. they may have heard or read over the years to that effect. Um, So I think reaching young people, even before they encounter those comments, is a great way to be very proactive. Um, So, you know, talk to them about some of the things that they might hear from others, ask them uh, what they think about those things. So you could say something like, you know, some people think that girls aren't strong or that they cry too much. How do you feel about that? And I worked in early childhood education for a number of years, and um, I saw this firsthand. It's really not unusual, as you just mentioned in your conversation um, with your son, that uh, children may already have started to believe Mm -hmm. some of these things. So if they express some agreement or that they sort of bought into some of these narratives, you can have an explicit conversation with them about where some of those ideas might come from why they aren't true, why they aren't fair. Um, And you can tell them that they're probably going to hear some of those things sometimes because they will, uh, but that those things um, are not true. And you can show them examples, counterexamples of um, girls or women being Mm -hmm. strong or athletic or of men or boys uh, being more emotional. You can talk about why expressing emotions is a good thing and how emotions and empathy can really help people um, and that we don't need to see those things as weaknesses. So um, I think, yeah, just really asking them what they think about these things, where they may be seen or heard these things um, and just being um, very clear and open with them about these are um, stories that you might see out in the world and uh, just preparing them for that. That's, um, that is, that is so, uh, so good. I know that, um, um, for the folks who are perhaps new to the Winters group, um, we do virtual learning labs and, and we could probably spend a whole like hour getting into bold inclusive conversations with kids. Quick plug here. We have a resource out on our website that actually shares some strategies for engaging in these kind of conversations with young people. And so I just wanted to throw that out there um, because in as much as this work is about us, you know, being introspective and I, I recognize a lot of our listeners are leaders and are in the workplace, um, you know, perhaps uh, hoping to leverage what we discuss in their professional lives. 
it is just as critical for us to begin to have these conversations at home and then just other part, you know, other areas within our sphere of influence. I am a firm believer that uh, this equity work, this justice work starts at home. And perhaps if we, you know, did a lot of this self-work and stuff at home, um, maybe we do less of it in the boardroom. Not that I'm saying we want that to happen because that's <laughs> how we pay the bills. <laughs> so yes, more boardroom work and let's also do the work <laughs> at home. There's and... room for all of you. <laughs> There's room, look, both in and. Look, both and. This is a both and world, folks. Both and work. Uh, both and world. <laughs> you know what, Lee? This has been so, so good. So, so helpful. Any final thoughts or any um, takeaways you want to leave with folks uh, as we begin to, to, to wrap up? Sure. So I think um, if I was to underline one idea, it would really be uh, just to reiterate the importance of talking about internalized oppression, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about it, writing about it. Um, as I mentioned before, it's not always easy or comfortable, but if we're not doing that, Again, there's only so far that we can get in making change. And I think, especially because there's oftentimes more acknowledgement of biases that we might hold about other identities than our own, um, if we're missing that part of the equation, it sort of perpetuates this false narrative that we couldn't possibly believe bad things about our own identities. Um, And sometimes that might cover up the ways that our behaviors might be harming ourselves or Mm -hmm. others. Uh, So I would just uh, leave listeners with the thought that it's better to get that out into the open and have a frank conversation about it because it's something that most, if not all of us are experiencing um, in some way. Uh, So, 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 so key reflection, reflection, discussion, um, uh, facilitating these conversations, a big part of the work. And we have our, I've mentioned it on other episodes, a reflection guide on demystifying internalized oppression for that reason. And so for folks who have been uh, listening along and who have obviously joined this episode, I'd offer you um, to reflect on the ways that you may be internalizing biases or messages about those aspects of your identity of which you are proud of, right? Or actively advocate for. Um, Think about those experiences that have led you to become more aware of the ways in which you internalize bias and oppression. And then as Lee um, shared and offered earlier, think about some of the ways you can actually do the work to counter the biases you and people you care about may be um, internalizing. This reflection guide is out on the Winters Group's website, wintersgroup.com, under our resources and documents. As I always share, the Winters Group is everywhere you could possibly think on social media, Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> YouTube, LinkedIn, um, Pinterest, even if you're here for our, our, our work right of the day quotes. Um, and obviously the inclusion solution, our blog is your go-to resource for all things equity, inclusion, diversity, justice related. Per usual, we end our sessions and our te- the Winters group on rather the inclusion solution live episodes with our commitment to live inclusively. 
um, we'll never get tired of affirming what this work looks like in action and the strides that we are making um, daily in our work. And so I'll end with our pledge, our commitment, and we'll see you, you next time. I commit to be intentional and living inclusively. I commit to spending more time getting to know myself and understanding my culture. It is in understanding myself that I am better positioned to understand others. I will acknowledge that I don't know what I don't know, but I will not use what is unconscious as an excuse. I will be intentional in exposing myself to difference. If I don't know, I will ask. If I am asked, I will assume positive intent. Most importantly, I'll accept my responsibility in increasing my own knowledge and understanding. I commit to speaking up and speaking out even when I am not directly impacted for there is no such thing as neutrality in the quest for equity, justice, and inclusion. I will strive to accept and not just tolerate respect even if I don't agree and be curious, not judgmental. I commit to pausing and listening. I will be empathetic to the experiences and perspectives of my others. I will use my privilege positively and get comfortable with my own discomfort. I commit to knowing, getting, and doing better than I did yesterday, keeping in mind my commitment to live inclusively is a journey, not a destination. It's been real, y'all. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a wonderful conversation, wonderful dialogue. Thank you. And we will talk to you all next time. Thank you.